you, thank you. I'm Cisco Cotto. I'm one of the shepherding elders at our Naperville campus. I always love when I get to come out to Village Bible Church, Naperville, and see the church family out here and share the word with you. Let's pray together, and then we will dig into God's word. Father in heaven, as always, we are grateful for your word, for the fact that it not only teaches us, but it changes us. Help us today to have hearts that are prepared to submit to what you have to teach us, and let us all leave here just a little more like Jesus. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, amen. The king was scared. And if the king was scared, everyone around him was scared. He was a fly-off-the-handle kind of king. Irrational, unpredictable, he was cruel. If the king was upset, there was no telling what he was going to do. And the king was scared, and that meant the people around him were scared. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had had a dream, really a nightmare. Woke up out of a dead sleep, couldn't get back to sleep. He was scared to death. I imagine knees quaking, hair on the back of his head standing up. The king was scared. He'd had a nightmare, and he wanted to know what it meant. Now, I find this a little funny because Nebuchadnezzar was sort of an egomaniac, tough guy, self-absorbed. He was powerful, he was rich, he was in charge of all of the land of Babylon. He had sent his troops parading into Jerusalem, took God's people captive, brought them back to Babylon, paraded God's people through the streets of Babylon, and then he put them in slavery and planned to keep them there, serving him for the rest of their lives. He, he is a tough guy. And yet here, because of a dream, Nebuchadnezzar is scared to death. Now, among those people who were brought to Babylon from Jerusalem was a guy named Daniel, three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they were young, but they were passionate about the Lord. They loved God. And he had given them favor, blessing. He'd given them wisdom. Daniel especially was gifted by the Lord to understand visions and dreams, to interpret them. It seems appropriate given the fact that we now have the crazy king who has the dream and wants to know what it means. It seems like Daniel and his friends are just the guys. The king calls in all of his wise men. Remember, he's scared and he's upset. He calls in all of his wise men. He wants them to interpret the dream for him. But surprisingly, Daniel and his friends are not there. And scripture tells us that the king often relied on Daniel. And yet in this instance, Daniel and his buddies are not in the king's court when the king hauls in all the wise men and makes his demand. What does the king say to these guys? You have wise men gathered around. They look up at the king. He looks up at them. And the wise men say, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
Tell us what your dream is, and we will tell you what it means. We will give you the interpretation. Okay, now, this may seem a little weird to us. I mean, I have dreams, you have dreams. Do you ever walk up to somebody and go, tell me what this means? And you probably wouldn't trust whatever they would say. And yet, in the ancient world, this is something that happened regularly. Wise men like this were employed in order to listen to the king's dreams and tell him what they mean. And so they had a whole book that was all dreams and their interpretations. Archaeologists, something like a hundred years ago, found this in Babylon, an entire stash of clay tablets, and what was written on them? Dreams and their interpretations. They call them the dream book. Here's some of these dreams and their interpretations. Listen to this. Uh, for example, if the king goes to a vegetable garden, then his work is going to be more challenging. Well, that's insightful. If he goes and sets a pile of wood on fire, he's going to see some sad days. If he goes to plant a field, well, then his life will be carefree. He won't have any hardship. If he goes to hunt in the desert, he will become sad. Dreams and interpretations. If he, in the dream, ascends to the heavens, he will live a short life. But... If, in the dream, he descends to the netherworld, his days will be long. That's really vague, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's like fortune cookie kind of stuff. And yet, these guys were employed. That was their job. You come into the king's court. He tells you the dream. You tell him what the dream means, and everybody goes on their way. You know, they go back to their offices. They search their tablets. They find the dream, and then they bring it back to the king and go, here's what your dream means. So this is not out of the ordinary. The scared Nebuchadnezzar is sitting on his throne. He is talking to his wise men. They say, tell us your dream, king. You know how this goes. Tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it means. But Nebuchadnezzar says, it's not going to work that way this time. You're going to tell me what the dream is and what it means. You're going to give me the details and the interpretation. And if you don't, if you don't give me the dream and what it means, I am going to have you torn limb from limb. We're going to ransack your house. It's going to be all over for you. If you don't tell me the details of the dream and the interpretation. If you do, oh, you're going to get gifts, you're going to get rewards, you're going to get honor and praise. It's going to be fantastic for you. So there's your choice, guys. Tell me what I dreamed, tell me what it means, and you get rewarded, or else you get torn limb from limb. It's like your choices are die or win the Babylonian lottery. I mean, that's, those are your options. The men, I imagine, looked at each other thinking, did, did we mishear this guy? Does he really want us to tell him what his dream was? That's crazy. And so they say to him, the king, tell us what the dream was, and then we'll tell you what it means. You know, you sort of know how this goes, right? It's the way it always goes. Nebuchadnezzar is getting angry. Not only is he scared, but now he's angry, and his anger's rising. And he says to the guys, I know you're stalling. 
You just want more time. But I stand by what I said. You either tell me what my dream was or what it means or you are going to be put to death. Tell me what it was, tell me what it means, and you're going to be rewarded. You're going to get all kinds of prizes in the place, Babylon. Go ahead, guys, go ahead. So so what is it? Now, by this point, we have a scared king, and I think we probably have some scared wise men. They know that he's irrational. They know he's impulsive. They know he's cruel. They know he flies off the handle. And now the scared king is telling them to do the impossible. Tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. I imagine these guys looking at each other back and forth, you know, the the eyes darting around, starting to shake a little bit, foreheads sweating. What are we going to do? Apparently, we heard him right, and he is serious. And so they say to him, very reasonably, they say to him, uh, King, uh, so uh, no man could do what you're asking us to do. And, in fact, no, no one's ever asked anyone to do that before. No man could do this. Uh, the, the only one who could do this, who has that sort of wisdom and knowledge, is the gods. We can't do this, Nebuchadnezzar. Only the gods can. It's like these wise men had it so right and so wrong in that statement. A man can't do it, but the gods can. So right and so wrong. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar's anger boils over. He is done playing around with these guys. He says, that's it, limb from limb, tear these guys apart. He calls in the captain of his guard, Arioch is his name, and says, go around all of the kingdom, round up all the wise men, tear them limb from limb, ransack their houses, I am done with these guys. And so Arioch goes around, he's rounding up the wise men, and then he finds Daniel and his three friends. He tells Daniel what, what's going on. Well, you know, the king had a dream. He's scared. The guys couldn't tell him what it was. And, and now I got to kill you. <laughs> Daniel and his buddies weren't even there. They didn't even get a chance to interpret the dream. And yet they have to pay the penalty for the wise men being unable to do what no one could do. Daniel there has a choice. What is he going to do? Remember, he's the one who's gifted by God to know visions, to know dreams. Uh, Daniel has a decision to make right there on the spot. What am I going to do? Am I going to go in and tell the king the interpretation? Am I going to give him all the details ahead of time? How is Daniel going to handle this? You know what Daniel does? He calls a prayer meeting with his friends. He says, tell the king, I'd like to meet with him. Let's set up an appointment. I'll give him the details. I'll give him the interpretation. I'll give him all of that. Uh, Go ahead. Let's set up this appointment with the king. And then Daniel goes to his three buddies and says, fellas, it's time for some prayer. We need to get on our faces before the Lord. We need to ask him to reveal this to us. We need to ask him to be merciful to us so that we can live. Turn to Daniel 2. We'll see Daniel's reaction here. I can't imagine the fear that Daniel and his friends are facing. 
I can't imagine what is going through their minds. Daniel 2, we'll begin in verse 17. Uh, Daniel and his companions, as I said earlier, were young guys, probably teenagers, away from home for the first time. You know, here at Village, teenagers go away from home like to Lake Anne for the first time. Right? It's a little different experience. Daniel and his buddies are in Babylon. They are far from home, and there is no hope of ever getting back there. How does Daniel respond? When told, if you don't do something, you're going to die. The king wants to know what his dream was and what it means. Daniel calls a prayer meeting. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. It says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Pause there. What does Daniel do when it seems like there's no other option? What does Daniel do when an irrational demand is being made? What does Daniel do when there is a dead end? The first thing he does is call upon the Lord. That's his impulsive reaction. I mean, he didn't have to sit and think about it. What do I do? What do I do? How can I do this? What do I do? And what I almost end up doing is, is I try to figure the whole problem out, and then when I realize I don't have a clue, then I talk to the Lord. I'm the only one who does that, right? right? You try to solve it. You use your wisdom, your training, your experience, your education, and you try to figure it out. And, and then when you realize you have no answers, then you go, well, maybe I better pray about this. And Daniel encourages us, no, right off the bat, very first thing, throw it on the Lord. Ask the Lord for wisdom. That's what Daniel and his buddies do. And surprise, surprise, the Lord comes through. The Lord is faithful to his people. We see that he reveals the mystery in verse 19. It says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now, pause there for a moment. Uh, we have Daniel who's gotten this good news. God has come through. He's been faithful. He's given Daniel the information that he needs the impulsive, irrational king has ordered all the wise men killed, including Daniel and his friends. What does Daniel do now that he has the information that the king needs? Does he immediately hop off and run into the king's chambers? Does he head straight for the palace? Hey, hey, king, I got your info. I have what you need. I have what you need. Stop the tearing limb from limb. Does Daniel do that? No, the same guy whose first impulse was to lean on the Lord in order to get the wisdom that he needed has the impulse when God comes through, when God is faithful, when God delivers. His impulse is to give God praise for what he has done. Daniel pauses and offers this beautiful, powerful prayer to the Lord, a prayer of gratitude to the Lord. And there is so much that we learn from this prayer of Daniel. Let's read this beginning in verse 20. It says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel pauses before he does anything else and just shouts praises to the Lord just gives honor and blessing to our God for who he is and what he has done. And we'll learn a lot from this little passage, just a couple of verses, these shouts of praise for Daniel, several good reminders, including remembering that God is the one who holds all wisdom and power. God is the one who holds all wisdom and power. We live in a world that doesn't believe this. The way we live our lives shows we don't necessarily believe it. Daniel tells us very plainly in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. It is clear. Wisdom and power are the Lord's, and yet we live in a culture, and even we in our lives often live as though that's not true, as though we have the wisdom and we have the power. We're the ones who have the know-how. We can get it done. We lean on ourselves. I can do this. I know how to handle it. We go to a YouTube video. I mean, just about an answer to everything on YouTube, right? We may try a self-help guru. We will go to a bookstore or get on Amazon and buy their books. There's millions of them. Listen to podcasts. They fill arenas with people, all looking to learn, how can I get it done? That's what self-help is. How can I get it done? The only thing that the gurus get help with is the size of their bank accounts because they make loads of cash off of all these people who are looking to find out how I can get it done, how I can have the wisdom, how I can have the power. And ultimately, we all need the reminder that God gives us through Daniel that God and God alone is the one who holds the wisdom and the power. They belong to him forever and ever and ever. They are his. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in some guru. It's not found on a Google search. All wisdom, all power belong to the Lord. More on that in a moment. We have to, if we're talking about wisdom and power, begin to understand in our day the glorious revelation that we have of wisdom and power. Something that Daniel couldn't see something he didn't grasp in the way that we now can. The wisdom and power that are seen in Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Colossians. He's talking to several different Christian churches, and Paul wants their hearts to be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we want to know God's wisdom, if we want to know his knowledge, if we want to know his power, it is all wrapped up and revealed in Jesus Christ. When we look to Jesus Christ, we see the wisdom that was given to Daniel. We see the wisdom that no one else has. We see the knowledge that only God can have. We see it in Jesus Christ. If you want to know the wisdom of the Lord, if you want to know what really matters, look to Jesus. It's a first reminder in Daniel's praise prayer here we're also reminded that God is the one who rules the universe God is the one who rules the universe God is in control it doesn't always feel like God's in control and Daniel needs to remind us he is in control even when it feels like he's not I have to imagine in the moment When Daniel and his buddies find out they're going to be torn limb from limb because of an impulsive dictator, that's a moment when it might feel God is not in control, and yet they knew it. They knew God. They knew what he was like. They knew what he did. It says here in verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Pause there. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God is in control. That means the impulsive, the irrational, the cruel Nebuchadnezzar would not have ruled Babylon if it was not somehow all being used by God. God is not asleep at the switch. God is not a set-it-and-forget-it God where he just puts us all here and lets it all work out. God, the sovereign one, the good one, the holy one, the powerful one, is working all of this out for his purposes, including having a man like Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. Do you believe that? That's a reminder I need. God is in charge of the universe. It's not me. It's not my leaders. God is ultimately in charge of the universe. When he says here, he removes kings and sets up kings, that is a reminder I need because uh, you may not know this, but we're in an election season. And people are going to be heading to the polls pretty soon. And we're going to have decisions made about who's running our country and other areas of government. And you're going to have some people who have their candidate win and some people who don't have that candidate win and... And when that your candidate doesn't win, you start doubting, is God really in control? If he was, how in the world could my candidate not win? And we need the reminder of Daniel, whether your candidate wins or not, God is the one who rules the universe. God is the one who's in charge. He's sovereign. He's working all things out. Nothing can happen apart from God's will. We don't have to like it, but I think the reason we don't always like the way these things work out is because we don't have God's full wisdom and knowledge. We're not always seeing things God's way. And if we did, we would say, right again, God. Nailed that one, God. Got it. 
Do we need this as we head into a campaign season that's going to be bitter and tense and divisive? Do we need a reminder that God removes kings and sets up kings? That God is the one who rules the universe? I I need that reminder. There's more good stuff here, though. Another good reminder. We said that God is the one who holds wisdom and power, but God also offers that wisdom to his people. He doesn't, in a sense, keep it all to himself and leave us on our own. He shares this wisdom with us. As Jesus Christ is revealed wisdom and knowledge, his people can come to him and ask him for wisdom in any of life's situations, no matter what life brings their way, trusting that Jesus Christ will share that wisdom with them. James says it this way in his book, James chapter 1, verse 5. James talks about lavishing wisdom on God's people. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You have a tough decision to make. Where am I going to go to school? Who am I going to marry? What bills do I pay? How do I invest? When should I retire? We have a tough decision to make. The Bible's very clear. Jesus Christ has the wisdom. Ask him, and he will give it to you. He is wisdom, and he shares it with his people. He doesn't hoard it. He gives it generously. All we have to do is ask. That's what Daniel and his buddies did. They went before the Lord. We don't have an answer to this. We don't understand this mystery. Only you, Almighty God, know. Please give us the details. And God shared the wisdom with Daniel. He gave him the knowledge that he needs. I talked about Daniel's impulse to pray, uh, Daniel's impulse to honor the Lord uh, by shouting his praises to the Lord. Uh, You have Daniel understanding Wisdom comes from the Lord. James tells us that we need to ask God. I read through this section of Daniel, and I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm super convicted in the fact that this is not what my normal existence is like. I wish it was, where I immediately went to prayer. And, and then I shouted praises to the Lord. When I needed wisdom, and I needed all the time, that I always went to the Lord for wisdom, immediately asking him, believing that he will give it to me, instead of trying on my own, trying everything on my own, only to get to the end of myself and realize I need to do what I should have done at the beginning. Bring it to the Lord. Ask him for wisdom. Trust in his sovereignty and give him praise this is what Daniel does and now it's time for Daniel to go to the king now it's time for him to reveal this mystery to Nebuchadnezzar that God has revealed to Daniel he comes into the king's courts and I have to believe that the other wise men were were kind of happy with Daniel Because right off the bat, as soon as he sees the king, he basically says, these other wise men had it right. Daniel says, no one could answer the question that you've asked. No one could tell you your dream. No man can do that. The wise men said only the gods could do it. 
Daniel corrects them a little bit. Verse 27, Daniel says to the king, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. No man can do this. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Now, king, you've asked for something that no man can do, but there is a God in heaven who can get it done, and he has. And then Daniel begins telling Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. Remember, the king irrationally is asking for the details and the interpretation. And so Daniel begins telling the king what happened in his dream, what scared him so much during that nightmare. And what he does, it'll put a graphic up on the screen, he, he shows that Nebuchadnezzar saw this mighty statue in his dream. This is what scared the king. This is what set his knees quaking. This is an artist rendition, sort of, sort of like this. What, you all don't have one of these in your house? Every, t- every time I hold this, I feel like I've won a Babylonian Oscar. <laughs> Daniel has been given the vision by God. He understands the dream, and so he relays it all to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there was a head of gold. There were shoulders and arms of silver. There was a midsection of bronze. Then there were these iron legs connected to feet that are mixed with iron and mixed with clay. This is what you saw in your dream, Nebuchadnezzar. There's a little more, though. There was a rock, seemingly came out of nowhere. This rock flies into the picture and crushes the statue. I mean, turns it into dust in the wind. It all just blows away. Only the rock remains. And Daniel says, in that dream, King, that rock just kept growing and growing and growing and growing, getting bigger and bigger and bigger into a mighty mountain. I have to believe Nebuchadnezzar, as this is going along, goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got it. Yep, that's, that, that's right. That's the dream. And now Daniel moves on to the interpretation. I mean, what, what does that mean, this weird statue and rock and mountain? What, what does all this mean? Uh, it's much more than the king is going to be sad or the king is going to have a hard time or the king is going to have a short life like the other wise men used to say. Now, Daniel gets very specific. Each of these layers of the statue are different kingdoms. The first one, Nebuchadnezzar, is you. The gold head is you, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, how how do you think the king responded to that? You think the egomaniacs just love the fact, I'm the head of gold. Everyone else is silver, bronze, iron, clay. I'm the head of gold. I have to believe that Nebuchadnezzar absolutely loved this. Here's how Daniel explained it to him. Look at verse 37. He says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Remember, Daniel's saying, God is sovereign. He holds the universe in his hands. He's the reason, Nebuchadnezzar, that you're in control. He says, The God of heaven 
has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And again, Nebuchadnezzar had to love this. You know, I, I'm the guy. Then he goes through, talks about each of these other layers, says that they are other kingdoms who will come after Nebuchadnezzar, after Babylon. Scholars are kind of split on exactly who and what these kingdoms are, at least most of them. Some think it's Babylon, and then it's the ancient kingdom of Medo-Persia, and then it's Greece, and then it's Rome. Some think that each of these layers represent different kings that are mentioned in the book of Daniel. You have Nebuchadnezzar, you have Belshazzar, you have Darius, you have Cyrus. We'll get to those later on in our message series in Daniel. You know, the people who study these things say it could be that, maybe it's something else. We don't quite know, but there is one that all Bible-believing scholars agree on. One thing. The only one that matters is the rock. The only one that matters is the rock that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream crushed the other kingdoms, that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream kept growing and growing and growing and came into a big mountain. The book of Daniel says that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation, it was understood that this mountain became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it would never end. It was a kingdom that would never end. Unlike Babylon, unlike any other earthly kingdom, it was never going to end. It'll go on and on and on. Verse 44, Daniel says, in the days of those kings, he's talking about this final kingdom, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, that final kingdom will have no end. It is the only true kingdom. What is that kingdom? Who's the king of that kingdom? I mean, I, I want to know that, don't you? Uh, the others we can argue about, we can debate about, we can study, but that fifth kingdom that destroys all other kingdoms, that outlasts all other kingdoms, who is king of that kingdom? And by now, you should all have that standard Sunday school answer. Jesus! Right? King Jesus is the one who came to earth 2,000 years ago. The God-man took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died a death that he didn't deserve. You and I deserved it. Rose from the dead three days later to save sinners who place their faith in him, who acknowledge their need for him because of their sin. He forgives, he saves, he invites people into his family. They become subjects in his kingdom. That's the final kingdom, and we're a part of it. The Bible tells us at the very end of the book 
that there will come a time when Jesus will return for his people. All of the earthly kingdoms today, all of the superpowers will be wiped out. America will not be around forever. And that's a very good thing. Because King Jesus will make a new heaven and a new earth, and we, his loyal subjects, will reign on that new earth, that kingdom, forever and ever and ever. And in the meantime, more and more people are being added. The kingdom's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. As people hear about Jesus and respond to his message and become a part of his family, his kingdom's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there will come a time when we will reign with him forever and ever and ever in this new kingdom. That's a promise, sisters and brothers. When we think about what Daniel is saying to the king and because of what these wise men have said, we must understand the deeper truth, the more powerful truth. Yes, no man can do what the king is asking. No man. Only the gods can do that. But there is one man who can do what the king is asking. The God-man himself. Jesus is the man who can do what no other man can because he is all wisdom. He is all knowledge. He is all power. He runs the universe, sustaining it moment by moment. He is the one who parcels out wisdom to his people who ask it. And he is, he is generous when we ask for wisdom. He is the eternal king. And we will be in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. No more fighting. No more tensions. No more divisiveness. No more pain. No more tears. No more grief. No more death. No more impulsive leaders. No more fear. It will all be gone. And we will be living with King Jesus forever. Don't you long for that? I mean, don't you want him to come back now? I mean, I know some of you, there's like football you got to watch, right, or something? But don't you want Jesus to come back now? Don't you want to be there now? We don't know when it'll be. We don't know when he's coming back, but what we know is that he is. We can count on it. And in all of the dark times, in all of the difficult decisions, in all of the times when we just don't know what to do, we can lean into him and count on the fact that there is a time when he's going to put all this bad stuff to end. And we are going to be with him. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the man who can do what no other man can do, that's our king. We are his subjects, and we get to live with him in his kingdom forever and ever. It's glorious.